What's going on, folks? And welcome to another episode of Thoroughbred Teamsters Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Rich from Northern California's Local 315. All right, no, uh, no fancy intro music, uh, old or new. No check-ins. Um, we're jumping straight to it today. It is Labor Day weekend right now. Today is Saturday the 31st. Um, the episode I got planned today is is one I've been looking forward to doing for quite a while now. Um, and I thought this would be the perfect weekend for it. It, it does involve somewhat of the origin of Labor Day. Um, you know, it's what we're all celebrating, correct? You know, to uh, for those who, who perform labor, pretty much. Um, but this is going to have a little bit of a different slant to it. This is not going to be... Like, it'll touch on the, the origin of actual Labor Day, but Labor Day actually kind of stems from something else, and, and this story right here is, is going to explain it. Um, this, this story actually is it's a true story. Uh, it's actually one of my papers that I researched uh, for my labor history class that I've actually mentioned several times. It's, it's called the Haymarket Affair uh, or the Haymarket Riot. Um, you know, during that class, I was doing a lot of reading, a lot of labor history reading, and this story really caught me. Um, you know, so l- let me just kind of get into it. I, I did, um, I do have, I researched this story, uh, used several sources, as I've mentioned in previous episodes. You know, anytime you use someone else's research or work, um, you know, f- especially me for these episodes, I got to properly cite them. I don't want no one, I mean, I don't think anything bad will happen if I don't, but I just want to make sure I give credit where credit's due because these guys put in a lot of hard work, uh, guys and gals put in a lot of hard work to research this, these items pretty much. So, um, just get those right off the bat. Uh, Philip Dre, he wrote a book titled, there is power in a union. That book is friggin' awesome. It tells damn near the whole history of, of, labor struggles and there are several stories in there I hope to touch upon in future episodes um, that are all actually kind of intertwined with this story I'm about to tell. Um, So again that book is There Is Power in a Union by Philip Dre and uh, we also got Douglas O. Linder and he's a law professor at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. So uh, he, he has a website titled Famous Trials. I just want to make sure that those are pretty much my two main sources for the story itself. Um, you know, if you kind of go amongst different sources and, you know, slight details may change. But, you know, I, I trust these guys to have done their research. Um, they're legit. So, and then uh, after the story, I'm going to just kind of get in a little bit. I'm going to have a, I pulled some um, some brief, brief readings from some pages to kind of close it all up. So, you know, hang in there with me. I, I promise I'm a, I, I hope I do this story some justice because it, as I said, when I was reading it, I, I think I literally pumped my fist in the air. And then at the end I was like literally bummed. So the tie in to Labor Day will, will be at the end of this story. So hang in there. Let's get this one started. All right. So you know how we got the eight hour work day and Although it may seem like it's kind of slowly but surely becoming more of a part-time America rather than a full-time America with all this, you know, gig economy stuff, um, you know, employers, you know, trying to split a full-time job 
into two part-time jobs and kind of make that more the norm. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, we still obviously have an eight-hour workday and it, it, it's plentiful, but businesses are kind of trying to change that right now. Companies are. Um, but, but the eight-hour workday really was a movement that was decades in the making. Um, workers and children literally fought and sacrificed life and limb to reduce their brutal workdays. Um, I've done some previous episodes on labor history, and I kind of touch upon those subjects. Um, these workdays, you know, were not uncommon to go from 10 to 16 hours a day, six days a week, maybe even seven. And, and the thought behind this eight-hour movement was to have eight hours of work, eight hours to spend with your family, and eight hours to sleep, theoretically. You know, that that's kind of how the... You know, when, when you're when you're those of us who have done the 10, you know, 16 hour days, you pretty much know it's just go home, shit, shower, sleep. It's, uh, we, we had a peak uh, at, at this company a couple years ago that felt like that, uh, felt like that for the whole month of December. So I can't imagine having that as my whole entire career as a laborer during a period where there were absolutely zero labor protections. So, in 1866, there was this union called the National Labor Union, pretty generic, I know, but, but they, were, they were really powerful back then, at least for a brief moment, and they passed a resolution demanding an eight-hour workday from employers, and a year later, you know, Illinois became the first state to enact a law to establish one, and Illinois is brought up because the story takes place in Chicago. So... Unfortunately for the workers, the law was, was never taken seriously by the employers, nor was it enforced by authorities. So it was really just kind of for show, hey, you know, let's keep the laborers quiet. We, let's, we passed the law, but, you know, back then, and not much has changed now, big business was in the pockets of the big politicians. So the movement, this eight-hour movement, it, it produced many battles between you know, the working men and women and their employers. And, and slowly but surely, they started winning the fight in certain regions and industries, you know, un- until the Fair, Labor's Stan- Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 became law. You know, that's when a, a lot of uh, just what it says, Fair Labor Standards went into law. But before that became into law, again, the year is 1938 when that became into law, but in 1886, there was, I, I would say that was the peak, uh, around the peak time that, I mean, it was just popping off. It was popping off between laborers, uh, military, you know, police, business, politicians, courts. I mean, it, it was cracking. So, and, and not in our favor either. So, you know, in 1886, that is the year of the Haymarket Square riot or affair. Uh, there's several different names, but all you got to do, if you really want to look it up after this, just Google Haymarket Square. Um, again, that is in Chicago. And it's one of the key battles that began in the streets and ended in the courts. And it's it's one of the most notorious battles, notorious battles in labor history, not just in America but across the world. So, 
you know, I, I, I hope to do some more episodes on, on, on stuff like this. I would really appreciate the feedback. Um, cause again, I think these stories are fascinating. I just hope I can do it justice. There are several stories like this, but this, this is one of the key ones. So, you know, the days leading up to the Haymarket affair, um, protests were, were constantly happening. Um, as I mentioned, this was the peak time where, you know, stuff was just popping off. And on, on May 1st, 1886, there were hundreds of thousands of people peacefully protesting through the streets of Chicago and, and tens of thousands across the nation joined to participate in similar protests. And what kind of, you know, what kind of is is awesome about that is that this is a time before there was television, uh, I believe telephone, I'm not too, you know, up to date on my history on that, uh, definitely cell phones and social media. So, I mean, these people organized with, God, I, I couldn't even tell you. I think uh, flyers, newspapers, um, you know, independent newspapers, um, word of mouth, what, you know, it, it's, so, so those numbers to me are, are incredible with what they had, but you know, you know, let, let's get back to this. So two days later, so about May 3rd, violence erupted at the McCormick Reaper plant, also located in Chicago. Uh, this incident produced dozens of injured workers and four people were shot dead. And it didn't take long to plan another rally to protest what had happened at McCormick. In fact, within hours, the next protest was already planned for May 4th, the following evening at Haymarket Square. Now, the protests at Haymarket Square were organized by a small group of anarchists and leaders of the socialist labor movement, such as August Spies, Adolf Fischer, Fischer, and George Engel. Uh, August Spies was present at the McCormick plant and witnessed what had happened. And it, it infuriated him so much that it caused him to prevent the revenge circular. In which about 1,000 copies were distributed, calling for workers to take up arms and get revenge on the oppressors of the labor movement. So again, you know, like I just said, they, their word of mouth was, was these flyers, was these newspapers that they called circulars. Um, little underground because, you know, I think at this time it was damn near being a socialist at that time was, was, uh, was not a popular thing. And I don't think it was illegal, but it might as well have been the way they treated, um, you know, these labor leaders, these anarchists, anarchists, you know, that's kind of all they had back then was how they, how they felt they could make a difference was by causing anarchy. Um, not necessarily something that is allowed today, but it's because of, you know, all these methods that they used back then that, you know, labor leaders in this day and age have to use, you know, a completely different brand of protesting. So the rally at Haymarket was scheduled to begin at 7.30 p.m., and was just as much a protest for the violence from the evening before at McCormick's as it was for the eight-hour workday. Again, all these protests that were occurring during this time 
were because mostly because of the eight-hour protests. They wanted eight-hour days. They were tired of the 10, 12, 14, 16-hour days. Kids, too. So, you know, it, it, it was a, a, a lot of things, but this was the movement going on back then. And, and this planned demonstration was not nearly as successful, <laughs> nearly as successful as the previous eight-hour rally. Um, 25,000 people were anticipated to attend, but the actual number was more closer to about 3,000. And, and that number was pretty consistent among, amongst the resources. It is likely that a combination of wet weather, exhaustion from recent protests, and the recent violence discouraged the much larger turnout. Um, in fact, the peaceful crowd was so small that they left the square and went to a nearby alley. So, I mean, I, I can't, you can't blame them. I mean, I, like I said, these things were happening, if not daily, weekly. The weather wasn't right. Um, the violence, you know, again, police used violence as a tactic to scare, you know, the protesters pretty much into, hey, this is what we're going to do, do to you if you come out. Um, and, you know, it's still a tactic today in some cases. So now the rally is in full effect. Um, again, not as many attendees as expected and hoped for, but, I mean, 3,000 is still technically a large number, at least in my book, but, you know, not compared to what they were used to with the hundreds of thousands, expecting the 25,000, and so on. So the speakers there were August Spies, Albert Parsons, who is the socialist labor leader, and Samuel Fielden. Uh, Spies briefly spoke first. Then when Parsons arrived, he also spoke, and he encouraged the crowd to arm themselves in self-defense and promoted international socialism. After his speech, he left to a nearby saloon. Also, the mayor of Chicago, Carter Harrison Sr., was in attendance to observe the event and even mingled with the protesters. He observed the gathering as peaceful and later even stopped by the police station where the officers were ready and waiting for the need of their services since they decided not to have a uniform presence at the protest. I mean, things were still hot. The spot was still hot. And the protest that happened recently, the day before, I believe, I mean, it was like, I think, pretty much right around the corner. So so after the, the mayor was mingling and just kind of checking out the scene, he, he stops by the police department and pretty much suggests to the officers, you know, to go ahead and go on home because, I mean, there was nothing but peacefulness displayed by the attendees, a smaller crowd. He pretty much felt there was nothing to be concerned with. But the policemen ignored the mayor's suggestion. And actually, they not only ignored it, but they eventually decided it was time to make their presence known to the organizers. So again, the, the protest started at about 7.30, and by 10 p.m., there were only a few hundred people left in the crowd. You know, being late, wet weather, I mean, I'd book it too, right? So Samuel Fielden, he was the final speaker of the evening, and his speech also encouraged the working class to take matters into their own hands with violence. The content of these speeches quickly reached the police department. I mean, these guys were sitting there waiting for something like this to happen. Just as soon as they sniffed it, bam, time to go. So the officers were ready and were immediately ordered to head to the current speaker and his crowd. They reached the rally around 10.20 p.m. 
and immediately began having the crowd disperse. As Fielding was exiting the speaker wagon, that is when there was a sudden, loud explosion. A bomb had just been thrown into the direction of the crowd of policemen. There were several fatalities, with one of the officers dying instantly. The officers immediately drew their guns and began shooting into the crowd without knowing who threw the bomb or even which direction the bomb came from. Both protesters and officers were shot by the instant reaction of the officers who were caught off guard by the bomb's explosion. Now, it is possible that workers may have fired back during the shootout, but evidence suggests most of the fatalities were from policemen fire. The scene was instant chaos with wounded bodies being carried to safety. As you can imagine, the scene was absolutely hectic and police rushed back to the station, which is described by witnesses as looking like a crime scene with wounded officers and blood everywhere. A total of seven policemen would eventually succumb to their deaths directly related to the bombing and shootings and 67 total injured. While the bomb proved to be fatal and caused injuries, the fact was that most of these injuries were caused from the immediate and careless shots fired by police into the crowd. Non-police deaths totaled four. The bombing, along with the violence that followed, created outrage amongst the public and across the nation. Newspapers all over the country denounced the brutal attack on the on-duty police officers. The investigation began, and police acted swiftly by arresting dozens of men and women the day after the bombing, on May 5th, but eventually most were sent home. Among those detained were seven of the eight radical quote-unquote ringleaders that would end up in court together. August Spies, Adolf Fischer, Samuel Fielden, and George Engel were all part of the planning of the protest or spoke at it. Michael Schwab and Oscar Nieb were also arrested. Louis Ling, a known anarchist and suspected bomb maker, was eventually arrested a couple weeks later. Albert Parsons, the eighth soon-to-be defendant and one of the speakers at Haymarket, fled the state almost immediately after the bomb exploded, knowing he would be an immediate suspect. Most of these men worked for a popular radical socialist weekly newsletter, which had its offices raided during the investigation. There was a ninth suspect, whom was suspected of throwing the bomb, but he, he was somehow able to flee the city and possibly even the country before he could be brought to trial. Within weeks of the bombing, a grand jury was called and soon brought indictments on all the suspects although little to no evidence was found physically linking any of them to the bombing. In fact, the lack of evidence was substituted by their openness to their anarchist ways by encouraging violence in their newsletter and at their public speaking engagements and were considered just as criminal as throwing the bombs themselves. The grand jury concluded that the bomb throwing was a direct result of a deliberate conspiracy. Also, the grand jury process was so quick that when the trial started, public outrage was still high over the deaths of the police officers. The trial process would begin on June 21st in Chicago, which was not what the defense team wanted. 
the men would all stand trial together, which was also not what the defense wanted. The judge, a 20-year veteran, was not sympathetic towards workers or radicals. In fact, he denied the defense's request for an alternate location and for each defendant to stand trial separately. One of the early surprises of the trial was the unexpected voluntary arrival in the courtroom of Albert Parsons. Um, he fled to the state of Wisconsin immediately upon learning of the news of the bombing. His wife, who actually was a huge, who ended up being a huge labor leader herself um, after the fact, she convinced him to turn himself in, but only because she believed the defense attorney when he told her that the case was weak, which it was, but again, different era, different time. Parsons was not as convinced as his wife was on being acquitted, and the, the jury selection process would not help that uneasiness he was feeling. So about the jury selection process, it, it, it definitely wasn't a favorable process for the defendants. It was next to impossible to find a juror who was not aware of the bombing at Haymarket Square, and most of the potential jurors already believed the defendants were guilty, but agreed to, quote, keep an open mind. Lastly, the, the defense team was not allowed to challenge any of the potential jurors. The jury was eventually selected. It consisted of 12 white men without any immigrants or laborers. In fact, some of the jurors were friends with the police officers at Haymarket. So the trial was set to begin on July 15th. The prosecutor starts off by reading from the anarchist and socialist literature. He then provides testimony of paid informants and accuses spies of being the ringleader for orchestrating the violence at the McCormick plant uh, on May 3rd and for printing and circulating his revenge flyer. Spies is also accused of plotting the Haymarket bombing, targeting police, and even elaborately planned, according to the prosecution, to have Samuel Fielden speak when he did, which would then trigger police to encroach Fielden so they could bomb them, thus creating an uprising in the city and starting a revolution. Man, that's a reach. However, since there was no evidence the prosecutor did make it clear that instigating and encouraging violence was just as guilty as those who committed it. The actual bomber was still not known and never would be identified, although many suspected a man by the name of Rudolf Schnaubelt, who fled the country never to come back. Instead, Adolf Fischer was pinned as the bomb maker in the trial. The defense began by providing witnesses who would contradict the conspiracy the prosecutors were framing co-defendant Albert Parsons by reminding the court that he was not at the meeting to plan the bombing and would not bring his family to an event, which he, he did, he brought his family, to an event that he planned on bombing. Louis Ling was also not at the meeting to plan the protest, nor was he at Haymarket that night. He was just suspected of being a bomb maker. Again, these guys were anarchists. Um, Hey, let's blame it on the bomb maker. So as both sides rested their case, the defense begged for the jurors to be objective while the prosecution stated there was, quote, no place for anarchism in America's society. On August 19th, after only an hour of deliberation, the jury reached a verdict without any physical evidence presented to the court. They were all found guilty. All but Oscar Neeb were sentenced to death by hanging. Neve received 15 years in prison. 
Multiple appeals were filed, even with the Illinois Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court, but each was denied. The appeal process did not, oh, they, the appeal process did get a stay of execution at the state level, but a new date was selected. The original execution date was scheduled for December 3rd, 1886, but it would not be until November 11th, 1887 that any executions would take place. In the months leading up to the final execution date in November of 87, some good news was brought to several of the men. In an unprecedented move just days before the scheduled hangings, the governor of Illinois announced he would commute the sentences of Samuel Fielden and Michael Schwab to life sentences, which meant they would be avoiding the death penalty. Louis Ling refused to be executed by the state and instead decided to take his own life by biting on a dynamite cap in his cell. The act was gruesome, but was committed on his own terms, which Ling preferred. Savage. On November 11th, 1887, August Spies, Albert Parsons, Adolph Fisher, and George Engel were all hanged at noon. Almost six years after those hangings, the governor of Illinois, not the same who originally commuted their sentences the previous year, would pardon the remaining three, Samuel Fielden, Michael Schwab, and Oscar Neeb. In the following years, memory of the Haymarket Martyrs was remembered with various Mayday job actions and demonstrations. The end. So I hope you like the story. Um, I worked really hard on that one. Uh, that's the story I've been sitting on for a few months now, and I've mentioned, you know, occasionally I, I got a story in my pocket, uh, and that was it. I hope I did the story some justice. I hope you guys appreciated it. I hope you guys learned something from it. And I'm betting that you guys are probably saying, all right, Jay, shit was cool, but what's the link between that and Labor Day? This story happened in May. So that's that's where this part of the, the episode comes in. Now, all that that I read, that was my own work, did my own research and all that. And this is kind of where I'm going to kind of read some stuff I pulled from the internet. So I'm going to, you know, explain where I got it from. I'm going to read some stuff. I'm going to kind of summarize some other it. It's not going to take long, but I'm going to make the connection between the Haymarket riot and Labor Day. So this portion of the episode is information I pulled from www.fotco.com and it's from the page not to be confused with International Workers Day. So, you know, around this time frame, there was May 1st was considered a, a holiday, at least in the eyes of labor. Um, it was International Workers Day. So, you know, and, and it will always be linked to the Haymarket affair. It's, uh, it actually became more popular because of it and more accepted internationally. I mean, this, this, it, it, it became May Day, just two words, M-A-Y-D-A-Y. And this holiday is actually hugely celebrated in other developed countries, but it's kind of overlooked in the country where it really originated from. Um, and, and when I say originated, I, I just mean where it really became synonymous with the Haymarket riot. 
so now here's where I'm going to read something from from the page. Some labor unions of the day felt that International Workers' Day was a more appropriate tribute to the struggles of their cause than Labor Day, which they considered a frivolous picnic and parade day. However, conservative Democratic President Grover Cleveland feared that a holiday to honor labor on May 1st would become a negative commemoration of the Haymarket Affair, rather than a positive celebration of how the nation benefited from labor. So, you know, t they didn't want May 1st, May Day, to be a federal holiday, a national holiday, because basically that's a nice way of saying they just wanted to forget it. They want, you know, they, they wanted to forget that part of history. Um, and, and that was kind of their way of, of trying to wipe the slate clean. They didn't want it to be, they didn't want Labor Day to be linked to May Day. Um, so in a way, Labor Day was created in order to to give the honor that uh, other labor leaders were, you know, hey, we still want our day, we still want our day, and the government, it, it kind of, the government and the labor leaders back then, not the labor leaders affiliated with the Haymarket, but just kind of the other labor leaders uh, in the country, they agreed on the first Monday of September. And I have to say that it seems to have worked again i've been a union member for almost 20 years and i didn't hear about this until maybe only a year ago if that i don't know i, I might have seen it on the calendar if you look on your calendars if people still have wall calendars and you look on there there's a good chance it still says mayday or international workers day or something hopefully and if not then you know then you see where this is going it's just again they don't as as brutal as that battle was you know i don't condone police officers dying or getting bombed i don't condone bombings but that is just what was happening back then that is our history and and to try to kind of scrub it from the books i i it it, it shouldn't be surprising because a lot of things try to get scrubbed from the books right um especially from the government so this is from the newworldencyclopedia.org, founded online. This one I'm going to kind of read. Uh, just brief couple paragraphs. Uh, hang in there. Uh, but this one I'm this is I'm going to read word for word. Again, newworldencyclopedia.org. May Day on May 1st commemorates the fight for the eight-hour day. May Day in this regard is called International Workers' Day or Labor Day. The idea for a, quote, workers' holiday began in Australia in 1856. So it didn't originate in the United States, but, you know, uh, you kind of get the gist. Um, with the idea having spread around the world, the choice of the May 1st date became a commemoration by the Second International for the people involved in the Haymarket Affair of 1886. May Day is a highly celebrated holiday in many other highly developed countries, but is often quietly celebrated in the U.S., where it originated. Although May Day received its inspiration from the United States, the U.S. Congress designated May 1st as Loyalty Day on July 18, 1958. So if this happened in 86, and in 1958 they designated May 1st as Loyalty Day, well, let, let, let me finish reading this paragraph. Following the passage of this law, 
President Dwight D. Eisenhower proclaimed May 1, 1959, the first official observance of Loyalty Day, defined as, quote, a special day for the reaffirmation of loyalty to the United States and for the recognition of the heritage of American freedom, end quote. Now, if that ain't trying to scrub May 1st from the history books, I don't know what is. This was designed to purposely counter May Day and the government's attempt to erase the history of the labor battles that May Day originally came to represent and honor. The day designated as Labor Day in the United States traditionally occurs on the first Monday of September. May Day has thus become an international celebration of the social and economic achievements of the labor movement. End. So, um, again, that, that, that's it in a nutshell. Um, Haymarket was just one story in this time period. There are several others, again, that I hope to, to get on. You know, I'd really like people to let me know what you thought of this episode. Is is am I going? Is is the labor history too much? I mean, do you guys like it? What? Let me know. Do, should I have more of these coming, or should I just kind of sit on it? Uh, I've even thought of doing a separate podcast just for labor history, but man, I can barely barely handle this by itself right now. So I think I would just be putting too much on my plate for that. So um, let me know what you think. You know how to hit me up on Twitter, at NorCalTeamster, all one word, N-O-R-C-A-L-T-E-A-M-S-T-E-R, Thoroughbred Teamsters Podcast on Facebook, and I believe it's at Thoroughbred Teamsters Podcast on Instagram. Let me know what you think of this episode. I I definitely want some feedback on this. Please, I'm begging. Um, But, you know, before I close this one out, I just want to say happy Labor Day to everybody. Um, hope I gave you guys something to think about, you know, me and the fam are going to go hang out and go to Marine World this weekend or on Monday. And, uh, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Marine World, but it's family time. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's time to spend some time with the family. Uh, no barbecues or nothing. Just, just pure quality family. All right, guys later. That's one source that I use to to wrap this thing up. There is one more source that I'm going to use, and then, you know, we can wind this down. Uh, It is winding down right now. 